catching up from behind. She's obviously in a hurry to get somewhere. And she comes past me, just as we're passing the, um, you know, towards the bridge. And we hear this clatter. And her mobile phone drops to the floor. And it bounces. And just sits on the edge. And over the edge it goes. And it lands in a rowing boat. So we're stood there looking at this mobile phone thinking, hmm, it's not looking too good here. And she's all dressed for work. She's in her high heels and, and a skirt. And she looks at me and says, do you think if I go down that ladder, I could pull the chain and pull the boat a bit nearer? I said, I don't think that's a very good idea. As it happens, one of the, the harbour master was passing and we beckoned the harbour master across in his ribbon, he came past and he, he picked up the phone and it worked out okay. But it's just an illustration of how, um, how tied we are to technology, how important it is to be connected. So I guess, you know, this morning in a culture where instant communication is the norm, it might be easy to wonder why connecting with God has become such an issue in our culture. Is it such an issue? I know that at work um, as a teacher, I can honestly say that I think my self-worth and my productivity as a teacher are quite closely linked. I think the more that I do at work, the harder I work, the more I get involved with, the closer I feel connected with the structure that I belong to. And I'm not saying that's necessarily correct. I'm just saying that's my experience. Um, I'm also quite aware that in this church we have quite a range of, of ages. I guess we've got, we've got people a range of 70, perhaps 80 years. And, and when you talk about something which is culturally bound, we all come from different age cultures. And I guess what applies to a 20-something might not necessarily apply to a 70-something. But Jack was saying last week, if you ask him how he's doing, he'll tell you, what was it? Tired. I'm tired. <laughs> but he says, don't stop asking him that because it's still important to be asked. I guess from the moment that we get up to the moment that we go to bed, there's a pressure to fill every moment. Not only are we exhausted, but I think it's possible that we can feel a disconnect. We can feel sometimes lonely. At a meaningful level, not just those at work, but our friends, even our families, and even God. Even feel a disconnect from God. I just want you to think back. Can you think back to a time when you connected with someone deeply? It might be your husbands, your wives, a friend. Can you picture that time? When you got together and something just, something just clicked. I better get this right, but it was when I met Kathy. We just, we just recently had our 17th anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> So that would make it 1998 when we met 
We met in November and we just clicked, we just clicked. We thought, you know, there's something here. It's just, we just connect. So six weeks later, nine weeks later, <laughs> we got engaged. Nine months later, in total, we got married. We just thought, that's it. We just connect, just get married. So this connection, it's something, it's something which is it's important. It's really important. And I think when we're not connected, we feel it's loss. And postponing connection until perhaps maybe we have more time, it's simply not a viable option. Now, controversially, I would say today perhaps we try to compensate, perhaps we overcompensate by connecting with social media. And yet we underconnect with ourselves, with others, perhaps even with God. And if, in case you're wondering what the slide's about, I've just borrowed this phrase, in the busyness of life, have we perhaps moved away from worshipping the golden calf to relying upon the Red Bull? if you know what I'm talking about. So this morning, I'd just like to look on three points. I'd just like to explore three ideas. The first one is this. Why is it that we may, may or may not struggle with connecting with God? Why might that be a struggle? And secondly, I'd just like to explore some of the ideas of the importance of connecting with God. And finally, just to look at this idea of the element of surprise. The element of surprise when we do connect with God. So, this is the first thought on why we might struggle to connect. I'm really interested in culture. Um, a lot of people will say that we're living in a postmodern society. Some people will say that's not true. Actually, we're living in a post-everything society. And, and that would kind of be fun to explore for another time, but I think one of the things in culture today is that there's a struggle for efficiency. The ability to do something or to produce something without waste. I work in a school. I know some of you work in, in the NHS in different places. Budgets are being cut. Outputs are expected to rise. Workforces are being streamlined. We're asked to become leaner, to become meaner, to become more efficient. We just recently put our house on the market. <coughs> so we watched a few of these house programs. Have you seen the ones that are on TV where they're selling houses? And they always say, we've got a budget of, I don't know, 895,000, some ridiculous figure that most of us couldn't afford. And yet, with large budgets, they always end up buying something right at the top of their budget. If only we had another few thousand, we could make it. There's, there's not much margin for flexibility. Everything seems to be stretched to its limits. Now, why do I mention that? Well, in a struggle for efficiency, let me ask this question. Where have the spiritual practices of prayer and Bible study 
where do they fit into a culture of efficiency? So we wake up and we spend time before the Lord. How does that fit into the cultural pressures to be busy? It's interesting, I think, that culture shapes our lives in such a way that we don't recognize it. I think secondly, I think there's a belief that we, and not necessarily God, to some extent have become the answer. I think I better explain this one. We all know that faith and works go hand in hand. And in our home group, we, we, we try to encourage one another to meet one another's needs in Christ. That might mean painting fences. That might mean clearing gardens. That might mean making a meal. All these things are vitally important. And I would, I would encourage us as home groups that we actually encourage that, 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 that ethos in our home groups that we not only offer to help people, but also that we, um, we become people that are willing for people to help us. But I think greater than that is something that we should be doing in home group is we should be encouraging one another to rely upon the Lord. We shouldn't become frustrated when all we can do is pray. This phrase that I've got on, on the slide there, I've heard it so many times, I wish there was something practical I could do. <laughs> Absolutely, but you can pray. But trust me, praying is as practical as you can get. If we trust that the Lord is able to meet our needs. You see, what happens when God meets our needs, I think it's threefold. When God meets our needs, we grow as disciples. When we see God move, we grow as disciples. And secondly, when we grow, we give God glory. And I think as we give God glory, we become a witness to those around us. And we generate a testimony. And we can share that testimony. You know that old show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? I was asking this question, who reads the Bible anyway? I'm not asking you to answer that question. But there's a bit of research that's going on at the moment up in Durham University, um, St. John's College, Codec it's called. And they're asking questions of how people are communicating an ancient faith, that's Christianity, how they're communicating Christianity in a digital world, in a technological world. And I'll just give you a quick snapshot to some of their results. They found out that out of the people that they interviewed, 78% of people owned a Bible. It's positive, isn't it? 78%, 8 out of 10, almost. Out of those who owned Bibles, maybe I could ask you, how many do you think read their Bible from one week to the next? Just shout out some answers. 10%? 2%, ooh, you cynic. Oh. <laughs> 
Actually, it was, it was quite optimistic. It was actually 18%. 18% confessed, owned up that they read their Bible between Sunday to Sunday. But this is a challenging statistic, the next one. Out of those who were 16 to 24, 70% said that the Bible was and never had been significant to them. And strikingly, there was a belief amongst those that they'd asked that the type of person who reads the Bible were vicars, priests, theology students, nuns, I don't think they've got any nuns, and people who were holier than they were. The Bible was not for the average sort of person. We know that's not true, right? We know that's not true. But yet, if we look nationally, if we look at the big picture, there is an issue with getting connected to God through the Bible. Isaiah reminds us, he says in, in chapter 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither of your ways my ways, declares the Lord. So secondly, we're just going to move on to why it's so important to be connected with God. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but I think you can grow into a sense of familiarity. It's kind of nice that you come to church, come to the Baptist church, and we take communion, and we know how things happen. And we feel quite comfortable with it. Or maybe you go to a C of E church, and you know how the liturgy works, and you, you've got this familiarity, and it's, it's, um, it's kind of comforting. It's as if we actually know what this is all about. But again, as Jack reminded us last week, as well as God being Abba Father, he's also a God that's beyond our understanding. And we need a healthy fear of the Lord. Do you know, if God was to come down and to blast our service, if he was to come down and just blast the service, how many of us would be genuinely surprised? There's a Catholic thinker, G.K. Chesterton. He once commented that the Christian's perennial task is to look at things familiar until they become unfamiliar once again. We need that healthy fear of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a healthy fear of the Lord? Well, I think it's to live by faith and not necessarily by understanding, in humility rather than by boasting. It's when we allow God to justify us rather than trying to do it all on our own. We don't get to know God by simply coming to church. We know that, but we get to know the heart of God by spending time in his presence. I realize that as, as I stand here preaching something, it's very easy to preach something which you don't necessarily practice. I don't know how many of you read a book by Rob Parsons, anyone? Rob Parsons, great guy. He's got a little 60-minute book called The 60-Minute Father. And he talks about this thing called quality time versus quantity time. 
And he makes this argument that a lot of people these days are saying, well, I haven't got much time for my kids, but the time that I spend with my kids is quality time. I'm a busy guy. I can squeeze 10 minutes in here, but those 10 minutes, they're quality. And Rob Parsons argues, actually, quality time is born out of quantity time. That time when you're sitting with your small children, running a car back and forwards for 60 minutes. And in the 61st minute, your child says to you, Mom, Dad, I'm really worried about something. Mom, I've been getting bullied at school. Mom, there's something which I need to share. That doesn't come in the first 60 minutes. It comes out of quantity time. And how do we translate that to our time with God? A quick five minutes here, a quick five minutes there. And how easy it is to say, well, I didn't really get much from that. Perhaps we need to get our quality time out of quantity time. If we look in the um, Luke 15, there's three, there's three parables. And just to recap the third one, the prodigal son. Prodigal. Spending money or using resources freely and recklessly. Just to recap the story, there's, there's a young son, he, he asks for his share of the inheritance, he goes off, he spends it recklessly, he um, spends it on, on, on wild living, and he ends up after a, a famine in the land, he ends up on, on hard times. He ends up in a pigsty, thinking, um, my father's hired hands have more to eat than I do. Surely what I need to do is to go back and just to repent, to go on my knees before my father and, um, and, and just ask to be accepted back. And meanwhile, all this, all this is happening whilst back at the ranch, if you like, is this elder brother. And he sees his younger brother come back and he hears the kerfuffle and the music and the, um, the father is, is killing the fatted calf. He's having a big feast and a party. And what does the older brother do? He becomes angry. He refuses to go in. Why is that? Perhaps through familiarity, there was an expectation that his father would respond in the way that he would expect him to respond. And when he didn't, he became angry. He was resentful. And I think the first sign to look for if you have an elder spirit, elder brother spirit, is that when life doesn't go right, when life doesn't go your way, you're not just sorrowful, but you're deeply angry and quite bitter. I don't think the elder brother actually loved the father because he was his father. I think he obeyed him because perhaps he wanted to control his environment. I was thinking the other day, you know, when, when, when you pray and you wonder how God is going to answer prayer. And we sometimes say, you know, oh, God will say yes, or God will say no, or God will say not yet. It sounds good. But even then I think, are we kind of dictating the way God answers our prayers? I, I, I don't know, you know. Let's see another example, Job. 
Job reminds us that we don't hold all the answers. Let me just read a first few verses of um, chapter 38. This is Job speaking. This is God speaking to Job. He says, look, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me. Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what words footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. He's having a bit of a dig at Job. You think you've got all the answers? Let me ask you a question. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed the limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here it is, blah, blah, you you get the picture. God is giving a challenge to, to Job. You've got all the answers? Were you there when I started this? Were you there when I did that? The answer's clearly no. We don't have all the answers. I guess it's really, it's really quite easy when we ask ourselves difficult questions to end up in a place of atheism. When we try to reason all the difficult scenarios of life, and I think the most difficult one by far has to be how a sovereign God can allow suffering in the world. I mentioned this to Kathy and she said, I suggest you leave this topic alone. <laughs> she was probably right. But there was a recent interview between the Archbishop of Canterbury and um, J- Jeremy Vine. It was just up earlier on this month. And um, It was really interesting because Jeremy Vine asked him this particular question. How can a God of love allow suffering in the world? And and Justin Welby gives his answer. He says, well, Job is a book about suffering. He said, I don't think there is a good answer, at least not in an intellectual sense. But he goes on to say that at the end of the book, after Job having spent an awful long time suffering, suffering very deeply, God appears to him and he doesn't appear to answer any of his questions. And Job says, now I see. He doesn't answer any of Job's questions. But Job through his relationship with God, through wrestling with God, through the difficulties that he's gone through, he says, now I see. He doesn't see clearly because of the answers, but he sees clearly because of his relationship with the Lord. We see Jesus upon the cross, taken upon our suffering, And all I know is that we're called to live faithful lives. We're called to be loving, to be graceful, to show mercy. It's been a real blessing hearing Jack preach through the Psalms. Because we read in the Psalms, the Psalm is crying out with an anger towards God. 
in a way that we would never dream of doing in our churches today. And it's completely right. It's the right way that we should connect with God in those particular moments. And when that happens, God is there. And Justin Welby finishes off by saying this. He says, all I know is that in the moments when I wanted to get away from God, in the way that a child runs away from his parents, I find myself embraced in arms of love that are more powerful than I am. Amen, Amen to that. And then finally, the element of surprise. It might be a bit of a killjoy here, but as Christmas approaches, do you find that more and more people are just giving money as a gift? Where's the surprise in that? I mean, there's no surprise in giving money. You know what's going to happen. You know, I, I kind of like the idea of you get your, your box and it's full of, you know, full of something and it's got your wrapping paper and you unwrap it and there's something inside of it and, and then you find it's not quite what you wanted. But, <laughs> but it's a surprise anyway. But I think if we look at some of the parables here, we find that even though they're written about people, the plot is always about God. The parables always tell us something about the heart of God. Just going back to the parable of the lost son, who would have imagined the father would have reacted the way that he did? Who would have imagined that in first century Jewish times, the father would have run out well, the fact that he ran is quite amazing. He ran out and saw the son and embraced him. And I think importantly too, it's important for me when I think of myself sometimes an elder brother, he also went outside and called the older brother back in too. But it's surprising. It's not what was expected. Or the parable, the parable of the vineyard workers. Some people start working early, some people come through the day, some people arrive at the vineyard at the end of the day, and yet what happens? They all get paid the same. Who would have imagined? It's surprising. Can you imagine those who came in for the last half hour? They'd be leaping for joy. They've been paid as much as the person who has been there all day. The person who got there first thing in the morning might be feeling resentment, bitterness. It's all unfair. How often do we cry out to God, it's not fair? Thirdly, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who would have imagined that it wasn't the priest who stopped, but it was the Samaritan who stopped? The enemy. I remember when being at university, just thinking of people who have gone off to university, and we'd be in the Christian Union. <clears throat> and I'd sit there and think, there are people who are here who are not Christians, but you're so close. Whatever that means. Whatever that means, to be so close. I think it meant you're such a nice person. You don't swear. God will surely save you. And then there's the guy at the back of the hall, the guy who used to swear at us, he used to shout at us, he used to ridicule and heckle. Who would have imagined God saved him? And praise God that he did. Who would have imagined? 
Now, I said a little bit earlier that we had our, um, we've got our house on the market. We've got four viewings on Tuesday. Naturally, what will happen is four of them will come in. They'll all like it, of course. <laughs> They'll all give offers and bids and say, this is great, and then we'll sell our house and it'll be fantastic. That's what will happen. Amen. <coughs> or not. If we go back to 2010, the last time that Kathy and I mused about selling our house, we ended up living in Africa. <laughs> so, amen. <laughs> we, oh, who knows? It's all about living your lives with open hands. We can't control our circumstances. And God will answer our prayers in ways that only he knows best. And we have to let God be God. But can I encourage us that if we want to know the heart of God, if we want to get ourselves in that place where Job was, where Job said, now I see, that will come through spending time with the Lord in his word and through prayer. And I say that as a challenge not just to you, I say it as a challenge to myself. In a culture where we're pressed to make the most of every minute, let me encourage you that spending time with God is exactly doing that. It's making the most of each and every minute. Jesus' listeners, when they listened to those parables, they would have been astonished they would have been amazed, they would have been challenged. Every ounce of familiarity that they had would have been shaken. And can I encourage us today that every ounce of familiarity that we have, can we just put it into check? Because God most likely is wanting to do something in your lives which you have never yet imagined. Okay, let me end there. Jack, if I could hand it back to you. Um, we're just going to play a few more songs and... Uh, Let's just give this time to what we've just been hearing about. If you want to spend the open-ended time with God and spend time with God these next few songs and just offer up maybe ourselves, maybe there's some of us who want to respond to that. In our seats, maybe you just wish that you want to hear God clearer. Or maybe sometimes we just need to recommit ourselves to, to him, to setting aside time. So let's just...